0: Moldbreakers, trailblazers and takers of roads less traveled and we're here to tell their stories here's your host andrew lawrence not all of us look the way the world expects us to look think as the world expects us to think we arrive at our destination the way the world expects us to on the square peg podcast we give a voice to mold breakers trailblazers and takers of roads less traveled i'm your host andrew lawrence and here are their stories and thank you to the Searchlight Needles for getting us started as always. The needles aren't just a quartet of middle-aged, overweight, and balding alpacilins. Robert Martinez, Josh Smith, Adrian Ortiz, and David Science are four really fantastic guys who hold down jobs and take care of families during the week, and they rock out on the weekends. You can find them on the web at www.searchlightneedles.com. You can find them on Facebook, and you can download their album on all streaming services. My guest today is now retired but she has served as a behavioral science consultant to law enforcement and was a private practice clinical psychologist for 16 years who treated people from all walks of life who sought her services to help them deal with trauma. She grew up as a military brat, and she received her Ph.D. from the University of Alabama before going on to treat military veterans dealing with PTSD. A book she co-authored, Deadly Force Encounters, Cops and Citizens Defending Themselves and Others, Win the Fight, Win the Aftermath, is now in its second edition, and is every bit as informative as the first edition. Dr. Alexis Artwall, welcome to the SquarePeg Podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, I, you know, I've spent uh last probably 10 days, uh, may not, maybe not 8 to 10 days, uh, kind of pouring through the second edition, which is uh, quite heftier than the first, I must say. Uh, how did we get so lucky to get, uh, to get a second edition of this book in the first place?
1: Uh, well, it... it it needed updating. There was nothing in the first edition that was out of date, I'm happy to say. Uh, but in the ensuing 20 years since the uh, first edition had been published, uh, you know, quite a bit more research has been done, and uh, i would had you know, quite a bit more experience and read a lot more research and talked to a lot more people. And also the uh, publisher, Paladin Press, that published the first edition, uh, they went out of business. So all of their books went out of print. So my co-author and I, he, he asked me, what do you want to do with this? We could, and Paladin Press gave the uh, rights back to us. And he said, well, you know, we can just let it die a noble death, or we can republish it ourselves. And I said, well, I think this is a sign from the universe that the, that the overdue rewrite, we should do that. So that's what we decided to do. Uh, I felt that the, I'd gotten so much positive feedback From the first book, I I might go to conferences and an officer would come up and say, Dr. well, I know that you've never met me, but I wanted you to know I was in a shooting five years ago and I read your book, and it really helped me get through that. So thank you for writing it. So when when I get feedback like that, I think, you know, the book still has uh, value to other people. So uh, I, I wanted to keep it going for another at least 20 years.
0: Now, there is quite a bit of new content. How, how did you arrive at or make the decision about what it was you wanted to add that we didn't, we didn't read in the first?
1: Uh, well, right around the time I was writing the first edition, I was uh, sort of toward the beginning of my law enforcement training career. And uh, over the years, as I did more and more training, to, mostly to you know, police officers, but a little bit to civilians, uh, I did, I, of course, I'm constantly thinking about, you know, what's going on out there? What do people need help with? And what are useful uh, bits of information that they could have not only to uh, win their deadly force encounter or whatever threat they might be facing, uh, but also you know to keep themselves mentally and emotionally healthy, uh, to be thinking about you know, the legal aftermath because for a lot of officers and citizens, although the deadly force encounter uh, or whatever, like I said, trauma they get into might uh, be very stressful. Many of them say really it was the, the aftermath that was the worst part, uh, especially when it comes to use of deadly force. Because you, uh, if you're a citizen, you're going to be investigated as a homicide suspect, and that's very frightening, in in a hard thing to go through. And uh, you know you could re- you have the risk of potentially being civilly sued. Uh, And for officers, they will undergo a mandatory criminal investigation. Uh, They will undergo a mandatory administrative investigation. Uh, And, uh, you know, there's a reasonably good chance that they and or their department wind up getting civilly sued. And even if all that goes just fine, the officer could still wind up being charged with a federal civil rights violation charge and could even wind up in jail over that. So you can imagine having to grind your way through that entire process, how stressful it might be. And, of course, the threat of civil litigation can hang over your head for years after the event. And uh, I I felt that a lot of people weren't really prepared to realize uh, all the uh, legal stresses they might be facing and how emotionally devastating those can be on them and their family members. And then, of course, uh, officers also uh, will come under a lot of uh, probably negative scrutiny by the media. And it's very distressing for them to see so many so much misinformation put out about what actually happened to them out on the street. So you know, so I know I included a, a more of a chapter on some of the legal issues. Uh, I'm very interested in research on what allows people to be physically, emotionally, uh, and mentally resilient, so, you know, I, looked, I did a lot of research on that, but if I did, I didn't actually conduct the studies so much as I scoured the the research literature for studies that actually look in-depth at that, and uh, also, there's a lot of mythology about police officer mental health. Uh, rumors have been floating around for years, and everyone just assumes that police officers have a high suicide rate, a high divorce rate. Uh, that they're, they develop PTSD from all the uh, stuff that they see on the street. And it turns out the research consistently shows that simply isn't true. They don't have a higher suicide rate than the general population. They don't have a higher divorce rate. Uh, they actually are pretty emotionally resilient individuals. And I found officers as a group to be uh, emotionally resilient people, sure, some of them are divorced, and every once in a while they commit suicide, but their rates are no different than the general population when you match them against the general population for age, race, and gender. So uh, it kind of irritates me when there's a misinformation that's floating around that people just assume is true without really stopping to think about it. Yeah. I also wanted officers and everybody to, to be skeptical. And When you hear stuff, especially from experts, you should be challenging them, how do you know what you think you know? Uh, you know, I'm a huge believer in science. Uh, I'm not a believer in scientism or the worshiping of experts, because experts can definitely be wrong. Uh, so I strongly I also wanted to you know, write something there about critical thinking and encouraging people to use their critical thinking to uh, interact with the world out there and to
0: solve their own problems. Well, you know, your first job was uh, in San Francisco treating uh, military veterans at a veterans hospital. What was it about trauma victims that drew you to this type of uh, clinical work?
1: Uh, well, of course, listening to their stories—they're—they're they're very dramatic. Uh, so it's not—it's not, it's not it certainly isn't boring. And I think what probably drew me the most was. How impressed I was by the resiliency of the human spirit, to hear what those combat veterans went through, things, you know, if you've never been in combat and I haven't, you, know, you really can't imagine what it's like. You know every once in a while you can watch TV shows and movies that do a pretty good job of depicting the brutal reality of warfare, but you know that just gives you the faintest inkling and listening to them talk about it and hearing their experiences. And when I started working with veterans, I sought out literature and memoirs of people who had been in combat to read about it and really to, to think about what they went through and how resilient they were. I was profoundly impressed by that. And I think what interested me most about trauma is how people can take a look and keep on ticking. And when you encounter people who are struggling with that, you know, how can I help them be as resilient as all these people over here? So actually, even though the stories were hard to listen to at times, uh, they were also inspiring.
0: Well, you know, you ended up uh, in a private practice uh, doing clinical psychology, and at some point you got involved in working with law enforcement. Uh, How did that happen?
1: Uh, well, I had, uh, because of my my experiences at the San Francisco VA Medical Center, that's where I developed an interest in trauma. So when I uh, went and did a two-year postdoctoral residency up in Portland, uh, I continued to actually do some volunteer work uh, at the San Francisco, at the Portland Vietnam Veterans Outreach Program, where I continued to do some work with veterans. And... Uh, Because of my interest in trauma, I would also attend seminars and uh, workshops on trauma and trauma survivors. And at one of those workshops, I met the chaplain of the Portland Police Bureau, and at that time, he was uh, sort of like their EAP person. One of his duties was to try to find local mental health professionals that would be willing to work with police officers who'd been involved in shootings uh, and other critical incidents. So he and I were chatting, and when he found out I had been working with combat veterans, he says, "Well, you know, that, with that kind of experience, I, you'd probably be a good fit to work with our officers. With, uh, we start sending some officers to you when they get into a shooting. At that time, they were, and they I'm, I assume they still are uh, sending. If an officer gets involved in a shooting, they're uh, sent to." one mandated visit with a mental health professional.
0: So can you tell me how you got involved in uh, working with law enforcement?
1: Yes. uh, Of course, I had worked with combat veterans at the San Francisco VA Medical Center and continued to do so in Portland for a while as a volunteer at the Vietnam Veterans Outreach Program. And uh, because of my interest in trauma, I would go to seminars and workshops to learn more about it. And at one of these uh, workshops... I uh, happened to meet the chaplain of the Portland, Oregon Police Bureau. And at that time, one of his duties was to find local mental health professionals who could work with officers uh, who'd been involved in shootings and other critical incidents. And those officers were required to have at least one post-shooting visit with a mental health professional. Most of them, that's all they needed. Uh, And there were some officers who were struggling more than others and needed perhaps some ongoing treatment. So I said, sure. So he started to send some police officers to me, and probably because I'm a military brat and i had done a lot of work with military veterans, uh, I hit it off with the officers, and uh, so one thing led to another. So a lot of officers from Portland and surrounding agencies uh, started to choose me as their mental health professional when they needed a mandatory debriefing or help with other issues. Uh, so that's how I got started. And, uh, you know, one thing led to another, and I started working with uh, their uh, peer support teams uh, at their request, and then officers uh, on the peer support team and some of the other officers I'd worked with and said, you know, you know the information that you've been teaching us during these debriefings has been very Helpful. I wish I had known this before I got involved in my shooting. Uh, would you be willing to come into in-service training and, and teach the rest of the agency so that if an officer gets involved in something, they already have a lot of this information? Uh, so I said, okay. So anyway, they persuaded the uh, Bureau to bring me in, so that's where I started doing law enforcement training. It started out as in-service training. And then uh, detectives who were sitting in the class would say, hey, you know, who really needs this information? Our detectives, would you come and teach at our Detectives uh, Professional Association annual meeting? So anyway, that's how I got started with the training. And it was actually the officers who encouraged me to write the first edition of Deadly Force Encounters. Uh, I had been writing hand Handouts for them, just little information sheets on a variety of topics to take home and discuss with their families. And uh, so they said, you know, I, I've been handing these out to some of my buddies, and, you know, I have friends who work in other agencies and other states. They may never have a chance to meet you. Uh, doc, you ought to write a book and put the stuff in a book. So that's how the book got started.
0: Well, uh, uh, you know, I. Uh... I'm going to read a quote here, and it is a little bit lengthy, but uh, I think it really gets to me where I want to go next. Uh, It's from Chapter 4. It says, when co-author Art Wall was providing debriefings for officers involved in shootings, she was alarmed to discover that the public, media, agencies, and even the officers themselves expected offense to defy the fundamental laws of physics and those involved to exceed the biological limits of human performance. These were well-known limits that had been studied for decades, yet ignored. Now, Dr. Artwell, the the first time I heard of you was when you presented at the Force Science Analyst course I attended in 2015. Uh, during that course, these unrealistic expectations were well documented by the sheer number of officers uh, involved in shootings on the job whose own departments uh, just about hung them out to dry because the people investigating these cases uh, were ignorant, ignorant to these limitations. Can you talk a little bit about the things that happen uh, or don't happen that are supposed to happen uh, for a human being when they're experiencing this fight-or-flight response to probably the most terrifying and stressful, you know, moments of their life?
1: Well, one, uh, one of the big issues that became immediately apparent uh, even, you know, 25, 30 years ago when I was first starting to do this is – Uh, Of course, afterwards, officers are going to be subjected to an intense investigation, uh, criminal and administrative. And uh, what people fail to understand is that human memory is not as far from perfect. Our, Our brain is programmed, not just during a critical incident, but 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Our brain is programmed to remember the gist of an event the gist of an experience, and what is our takeaway lesson from that experience. It doesn't really care about a lot of the details, which are irrelevant. However, if you get tangled up in the criminal justice system and you're now being interrogated, the devil really becomes in the details. Because when people come up and say, what happened, typically they're not going to be interested in just the gist. They're going to want to drill down and say exactly what happened next and who did what and what sequence did it happen in and so on and so forth. And the reality is that's just not how the brain works, especially when you're involved in a fight for your life. And so people, uh, they get tunnel vision. Uh, Their hearing often will shut down except for certain sounds. Uh, They get sensory uh, focusing where the, anything that's not immediately relevant for your survival basically gets ignored. Uh, and as a result, you, have a, you often have a very spotty memory of many parts of the event. It's typically for people who have very vivid and specific memories of certain things and everything else is kind of blurred or and sometimes just completely missing. For instance, an officer could be involved in a shooting. His partner could be standing four feet next to him, cranking off rounds from a shotgun, and the officer is completely unaware that that is happening. He doesn't see the officer. He doesn't hear the rounds are going off. And people say, well, that can't happen. That's not possible. Yes, it is. It happens all the time because your brain, all perception happens in the brain. It doesn't happen with your eyes or your ears or your skin. Your sensory organs are simply picking up stimuli in the environment and sending electrical signals to the brain. And the brain has to figure out what that means. And the brain can't pay attention to everything all the time. People think, you know, we're paying attention to everything around us. No, we're not. Your brain actually has a very limited attention capacity, uh, even in your normal everyday life. Uh, And that is amped up even more when you're involved in something like a fight for your life or any other intensely emotional thing where you're trying to figure out what the heck is going on. Uh, So your brain makes a decision completely out of your conscious control. You know what? Sound doesn't matter right now. So I'm just simply going to shut down hearing and devote all of my resources to vision. So that's why a lot of people will describe everything happening in slow motion, uh, I, I knew things were happening around me but I couldn't hear them or I I when I if I did hear the gun the rounds going off they sounded like a distant muffled pop pop kind of sound uh completely muffled like it, I wasn't even sure what that was people who involved in traffic accidents will just they they know that metal is crunching and glass is breaking but they may not hear that um so uh, the, it's called selective attention, and there's decades and decades of research showing how selective attention works and that, as a result, you're going to have highly imperfect, detailed memory of the events that you're involved in. Now, most people think their memory for detail is actually a lot better than it is, and the reason for that is you know, 99.999% of the time, nobody cares Nobody questions you. Nobody interrogates you about it. So you go through life with the mistaken impression that your memories are highly accurate. However, if someone were to come along and start interrogating you every day about exactly what happened to you during your day, you would quickly discover, you know, you don't remember probably most of it. And you get details wrong. People have false memories. They're absolutely sure something happened and it never never happened at all or happened dramatically differently than the way they remember it. And I can give you a lot of personal examples, and probably most people could too. And some of those examples for myself of having false or uh, incorrect memories, I, to this day, would think that my memory was accurate, except there was a circumstance where I was confronted with, well, no, that's not what happened. And I can say, yeah, well, you know, you're right, that isn't what happened. I don't know why I felt that way, but that's how I remember it. So when citizens and officers are now tangled up in the criminal justice system and they start having missing memories, false memories and incomplete memories, it's normal for memories to kind of change over time, uh, now they're accused of being liars, of covering up, of being incompetent, uh, and other things that I'm not saying that that never happens, but it's, that certainly is unusual. And But the memory issues are very, very typical. So I'm kind of pulling my hair out when detectives are questioning people and saying, well, you know, you couldn't forget something like that. You must be lying. In fact, I was actually at a professional seminar uh, in which I was hearing a detective, uh, a ho- retired homicide detective from a large agency, telling the client that, now, if I have an officer come in uh, and I'm interrogating him, and uh, I say, well, what happened next? And the officer says, I really don't remember that part. I just look at that officer and I just tell him, that's not good enough. That that's crazy. I, I was appalled to hear that because basically, what the detective is doing is more or less ordering the officer to desperately try to make something up uh, just to please the detective, and that's very bad interrogation. Techniques. Now, I'm not saying that the uh, this detective was a bad person. I'm just saying he he's misinformed.
0: Well, that's definitely not a good uh, you know technique to use. And it's funny you brought up uh, briefly something about a car accident. That's actually one of the examples that I use when I explain this concept to people. Um, you know, most people who have been in some most most of us have been in some sort of at least very minor fender bender. And when you think about the, you know, the short, relatively short time it takes for the police to show up and they start asking you questions about what happened and people um, start to think about it and they're really amazed at how much they actually don't remember simple things like, um, you know, where were your hands or what color was the car? Or do you remember how many people were in the car or, you know, some very simple things that you would think that might be innocuous and people certainly wouldn't have any reason to to, to not want to remember or, or, or purposely, you know, omit. And you also remind me of uh, definitely something that I know that's in both the first and second edition, uh, uh, an officer's account uh, of being in a highly stressful situation. Uh, And if I'm not mistaken, you spoke about it when you presented uh, at the conference where we met or the training where we met. And that is an officer who was involved uh, in a very high-stress, high-speed pursuit. There may or may not have been gunfire coming from the, the suspect, but what he didn't realize until he went home and talked to his wife is that he actually called her on the phone at least once to tell her that he loved her and that, you know, to remember that in case I don't come home. Um, so, you know, those are some examples of the types of things that people probably don't think about. Now, there are some, I don't want to call it techniques, but methods that we know have worked to help people remember things better. I know you have done some research on this. Uh, I know that Dr. Lewinsky at the 4Science has, and I've actually read about this pretty extensively uh, through somebody you referred me to, whose work you referred me to a couple of years ago, uh, and that's Dr. Daryl Ross of Valdosta State University. Uh, talk about um, what kind of benefits people can have from waiting a few days and, and getting some good sleep before they're asked to recount uh, details of these highly stressful situations.
1: Uh, well, yeah, the, you know, the example of the officer making a phone call uh, – He had no memory of making that phone call. And after he hung up from his wife, he called his dad, and he has no memory of making that phone call either. And those memories never – I actually ran into him a few years later. uh, And I said, did did the memory of those phone calls ever come back? He says, no, to me, it's like it never happened. And uh, so sometimes memories – sometimes you can enhance memory and help it come back. Uh, sometimes waiting will help consolidate memory. Uh, but sometimes, as far as your brain is concerned, it never happened. And uh, so the, the, the value in waiting to give a statement is uh, the research on sleep and memory con- consolidation. I find sleep to be a fascinating topic because when you think about it, what possible evolutionary advantage does sleep have? When you're, when you're sleeping, you know, think of, you know, wild animals and human beings before you built these nice shelters that keep us protected at night. Uh, when animals, or in, including humans, are out in the wild uh, when they're sleeping, they're vulnerable to predators. Uh, they are not finding food. They're not reproducing uh, they 're just kind of hanging out so uh, and being more vulnerable so so why on earth would Mother Nature evolve a process where animals sleep, and all animals do some form of it uh, where they just basically shut down for the night so uh, it turns out that when you 're sleeping, your brain is actually extremely active so and before I get into the, the part on memory, I find this absolutely fascinating. They did some research on mice a few years back, and they, and they say, okay, we know that a lot is going. We now know that a lot is going on in the brain. Uh, people are dreaming. Uh, there's all kinds of uh, brain waves going on. It's, it's not a passive process at all. Clearly, the brain is up to something very important at night, uh, because if you start to miss sleep. Within 24 hours, you are as physically and mentally and and often emotionally impaired as someone who's legally drunk. And as you continue to stay awake without sleeping, you become increasingly mentally incompetent. And after about two or three days, you often start hallucinating. I mean, you really just completely fall apart. So something is happening during the sleep that is restoring the brain. And with the mice, they found out they did, what is the brain actually physically doing? What are the neurons physically doing when you're asleep? And they found out that the, the neurons in the mice, the brain cells, actually shrank in size by 60%, which I found fascinating. And what this did was when the neurons shrank, they opened up the spaces in between the brain cells, which allowed the spinal fluid to flush the waste products out of the brain. Uh, and these waste products often contained substances that are often associated with Alzheimer's disease and other dementias. So basically, each night your brain is performing the critical task of taking out the trash while you're sleeping, cleaning out the day's metabolites, because it appears that the brain is an extremely active biological computer, and just like computer computers generate a lot of heat, your brain is generating a lot of uh, sort of uh, toxic waste products as a result of this intense activity, because, you know, the brain is one of the most complicated known things for us in the universe. Even in a mouse, it's doing amazing things when you think about it. Uh, so, uh, so our brain is taking out the trash, and it's also – Sleep researchers shown it's critical for consolidating memory so if you were to learn if you were to try to learn something new and be tested on it later but they, they've done experiments where they would take one group of people and have them have, have both sets of people learn a new task and then they're going to test them on it later and one group is allowed to sleep in between the learning and the testing and the other group does not sleep between the learning and the testing, and the group that sleeps in in between the learning and the testing performs better than the group that didn't get sleep. So there's been now a lot of research confirming that sleeping helps consolidate learning and memory. Uh, Also, in the immediate aftermath of a life-and-death event, uh, you're going to be pretty wound up and... uh, you know, when you're pretty wound up like that, you're, you're you often are people are often exhausted. They're wound up. They're anxious. Uh, they might, especially civilians maybe who aren't don't have as much training as officers do, might be really confused and upset about what's going to happen next. That's really not a good time to give a, an extremely important interview uh, in which you could wind up being charged with a crime.
0: Well, which so, is why we generally say, uh, what is it, uh, 48 to 72 hours and two good sleep cycles, right?
1: It, yeah, that, that's, that would be preferable by all means.
0: Well, definitely better than somebody who, who especially runs into something at the end of a 10 or 12-hour shift uh, and they work nights and they were in court all day before that. Uh, that's certainly not uh, the best situation for, for good memory consolidation and being able to re, uh, recall details. Now, Doctor Orwell, you've trained people like me, uh, who investigate these high-stress incidents uh, and these high-profile cases, to better help us uh, help the officers involved uh, to mine their memories, if you will. Uh, you've also trained us to be aware of the limitations of the human mind and memory. Um, have you? You've also done some training uh, to help people prepare themselves to survive psychologically, uh, and thus perform physically when they go through situations like that? What kind of tools do they, can you help somebody use to help prepare them uh, or, or tools to help someone to develop that might be able to help them uh, psychologically and thus physically deal with uh, some, some of the most high stress situations they'll ever experience?
1: Uh, I think a lot of it is mental and emotional preparation ahead of time. Obviously, training to deal with the event, you know, whatever it is that you're doing, is, is obviously very important. I mean, You could go on and on about that forever, all the different training techniques. But I think kind of a global thing is really thinking about mindset and developing the right mindset toward whatever the stress is that you're facing is important. Uh, some of the mindsets are, one, the survival mindset, which is that you recognize that uh, you're operating in a, in a dangerous environment, and some are obviously more dangerous than others. This applies to every human on the face of the planet, not just police officers. When you're out driving, uh, that's, you know, when you think about all the things that go wrong out there that kill, you know, about 45,000 people a year and mains countless others, driving to the grocery store, you know, you're putting your life in your hands. So you need to be thinking about the survival mindset, which is I'm aware of my environment, Uh, I recognize that there are dangers. This is not to have people be anxiety-ridden. It's simply to have people realistically think about what's going on and what can I do to enhance my safety, Uh, because if you uh, don't do that and you wind up getting caught flat-footed and uh, not well-prepared and... uh, something happens and you kind of goofed up or weren't paying attention, that's not going to be happy for you in the aftermath. It's it's normal for people to think, no, to second guess themselves, to feel some guilt about what might have happened no matter how well they performed. And the more that you've potentially screwed up during an event, uh, the more that can become a crushing emotional burden in the aftermath. So the survival mindset uh, is important. The calmness mindset, the ability to, uh, when something really starts to ramp up or you get hit with a sudden stress, to somehow keep your wits about you and stay calm rather than, you know, basically freaking out. Uh, Some people have a natural ability to do that, and others of us really have to work on it uh, because the ability to stay calm and focused is critical not only to our survival but also uh, to our mental and emotional well-being in the aftermath. There's also the, especially for police officers or any person dealing with interpersonal conflict, there is the respect mindset, which is that you are going to interact with everybody out there with unconditional respect. Uh, This does not mean that you're uh, going to be wimpy. You're going to be firm. You're going to be in control. Uh, you're going to do what you need to do to take care of business, but you're going to do it respectfully to the other person. Uh, and uh, this includes civilians. You know, For instance, if, if I'm out in my survival mindset is, let's say I'm pushing my grocery cart through the parking lot, and I've had three occasions in my life where bad guys came up and tried to mess with me in a parking lot, and that's one of their hunting grounds. And, you know, they're looking for, you know, people like me, a little old lady pushing a cart. You know, I'm distracted. I'm not paying attention to my surroundings. I'm going to open up my car. That's a very vulnerable moment because I'm not paying attention. I'm trying to get my groceries in the car. The car is vulnerable now to carjacking. So uh, if I'm pushing my grocery cart out into the car, I'm – very much in survival mindset. I've got my head on a swivel. I'm surveying the landscape. Uh, I'm checking everybody out. If I see anyone that looks remotely suspicious, I uh, keep an eye on them. I'm not being obvious about it, but I'm very clear where they're going. And, you know, I have a plan, and it saves me at least a couple of times from having a stranger get too close. And if I see someone suspicious-looking beginning to approach me, I will stop what i'm doing i will turn and face them i will take a step forward put my hand up in the universal stop position and yell in a very loud voice with a smile on my face no thank you i don't need any help
0: that's a good response i like that and you know it's funny you brought up survival mindset because i actually had it right next here in my notes um you know you mentioned that cops are used to it but non-law enforcement people have said that they don't want to live their lives like that. And and I think that's kind of funny because one of the things, um, you know, the survival mindset and all the little things that that people in law enforcement do that we've done, you know, since our academy days uh, that really annoys my wife because she's as much of a people watcher as I am. Whenever we go to a restaurant, I have to sit my back with my back to a wall and I need to be able to see the door. And that's not something that I think about. It just happens. Uh, she also doesn 't right. doesn 't like going to in public places with me because she thinks i 'm never paying attention to her because i 'm always looking around and scanning the room and 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 kind of seeing who 's there but you know i want to uh on on the issue of memory recall one of the things uh that 's uh, a hot topic uh, among people who study these things and uh, those of us who investigate uh, officers uh, involved in officer involved shootings uh, and officer involved events. And I actually went, you know, I, I, I met you and heard you first speak at that, the five-day Force Science Analyst course uh, in South Jordan, Utah in 2015. And uh, a little bit less than a year later, I went to the Force Science Training Center in Chicago for a two-day course on how to interpret video evidence. And one of the big debates is whether or not a police officer should look at his body camera or dash cam footage before giving a statement. Um, I, I won't ask you to pick a side, but do you want to maybe touch a little bit on the, the pros and cons of each?
1: Uh, yeah. The, I would say the um, – I guess the investigators need to ask themselves a question. What, what is the goal of the investigation? Is the goal of the investigation to find out what actually happened? Or is the goal of the investigation to give all the participants and witnesses – memory test which none of them are going to perfectly pass. They're, go- they're going to fail parts of it. So, so, so what's the goal? Uh, so it would be typical for an officer's recall of the event to be somewhat different than what a video might show, assuming that the video even accurately shows what happened. Because as you know from taking that course, videos can also give us a, a very false impression what actually happened. People think videos are these perfect, accurate recordings, and, of course, they're not. We they're, uh, you, you don't have time to go into here, but you look into all the details, all these shortcomings of videos, you quickly realize, yeah, they're, they're a tool. Like everything else, every, every piece of data an investigator can get his or her hands on is a useful tool to try to get to the bottom of what happened. And videos are one of them, but it's it's not perfect. Uh, So, and the videos also don't experience the event like a human being does. Uh, The videos don't necessarily have, they don't under, they're not under the influence of selective attention, fear, uh, the brain shutting out different uh, parts of the incident, and so on and so forth. So... The the pros of having an officer watch the video is it allows the officer to uh, get more clear in his or her mind what actually happened. Uh, The con is uh, it might be better for the officer to give a statement first so the investigators can find out what did the officer experience. Uh, So let's say that Uh, The video might show that a suspect who was uh, fighting the officers uh, being uncooperative and so on and so forth, and uh, the officers had gotten information, a a man with a gun called, they show up, uh, there's a foot pursuit. Somewhere along the line, the suspect who did in fact have a gun throws the gun away. Uh, They finally uh, corner him and screaming at him, obviously, drop the gun, put your hands up instead of complying, the person turns around, it's dark. Uh, he reaches into his waistband and pulls something out. And of course he gets shot. Uh, and it turns out that he was for some odd reason, rather than complying with the officers, he decided to pull out a cell phone or something else. And, uh, you know, if the officers report, yeah, man with a gun, uh, Multiple people said he had a gun, we chased him, he pulled that thing out, I saw a gun, and I shot him. Now, the officer uh, may or may not at that point realize that it was actually a cell phone. Uh, So if he uh, winds up telling the investigators, yeah, he pulled out a gun, he may be shocked to find out, no, it wasn't a gun, it was actually a cell phone. And does that mean that the officer is lying or that he's incompetent? No, because the totality of the circumstances and the context in which everything occurred, certainly his brain was very reasonable to conclude that that person had pulled out a gun, uh, given the the entire situation. Uh, So the advantage of uh, the officer giving a statement first is he can tell the investigators, no, he pulled out a gun, I saw a gun. And, uh, you know, I needed to shoot him before he started shooting at us. And then once he's given a statement, uh, they can say, well, we'd like to show you the video. We'd like you to, you know, comment on anything that you see in the video. And that would be the opportunity for the officer to say, well, okay, you now I, c- I can't see that at the cell phone, but that's certainly not what I saw at the time. So there, there's pros and cons on both. Right. Um, and, and, I would advise detectives to take it on a case-by-case basis.
0: Well, and I've heard uh, people uh, you know, uh, in your same, you know, your same level of, of uh, experience and, and, and accomplishment uh, give really both sides, and it's certainly not something that's going to be decided or, or figured out right here on the SquarePeg podcast. Now, um, we're, we'd love to be able to go into – there's one other thing I'd love to be able to go into, but I don't think we're going to have time, but I'll just mention it. I did enjoy um, – your chapter, it wasn't titled Wound Ballistics. It had something to do with the, the, the efficiency or the, the effectiveness of handgun cartridges. And it actually reminded me a lot of a book that you actually referenced in that chapter, uh, In Defense of Self and Others by retired FBI agents, uh, ure I hope I'm pronouncing his first name correctly, uh, ure Patrick and John Hall. Uh, and what I find really, really interesting, um, interesting. And again, the type of thing that, that unfortunately we have Hollywood's given us unrealistic expectations about, and that is the, um, the combination and the difference between physiological and psychological responses to people suffering gunshot wounds and what people are capable of doing, even after suffering, what is eventually going to be within the next minute or two, uh, a fatal wound. Um, that's, that's something that I think that people, people who, um, have a lot of questions about, you know, why do police officers shoot so many times? Why, don't, why do they shoot in the arms and legs? And, you know, this, that, and the other thing, uh, two very, very worthwhile um, books uh, to read, your chapter uh, on that and and their chapter as well. I do, I want to end by saying um, I, I've always been very impressed, Dr. Artwall, with with uh, how responsive you've been. I think that, you know, I, I'm i one of those students who always wants to talk to the instructor after they present. Uh, and I had a short conversation with you there in Utah. And I think about a year later, I emailed you asking for some references for people who do work similar to yours uh, and similar to, to that of uh, Dr. Lewinsky at the Forest Science Institute. And you really pointed me in some great directions. I've, I've read a lot of Dr. Martinelli and Dr. Ross's stuff. Um, and you actually, about a would, how long, I don't know if it was a year, year and a half, two years ago that the second edition came out, um, I got an email from you letting me know that it was out. So I you know I want to I want to thank you for that and let you know that that doesn't go unnoticed. Um I'm I'm always I'm always impressed uh, with with celebrities like you who speak in front of hundreds of people and publish books um would take the time to respond to an email and and think to give me a heads up uh on a second edition. Um, oh well, thank, thank you for letting me know. I'm I'm here to to protect and serve. There we go, Doctor Alexis Artwell. Um, the book is now in its second edition. Uh, Deadly force encounters. You can imagine you can find it. I got it on Amazon. I'm sure people can find it uh, wherever it is that they buy their books. Um, this has been a very interesting. I, I can't say I learned anything necessarily new because I've read you know read both of your books. I've heard you speak and I've you know followed you a bit. But um, I I wanted to have have you on the show because I wanted an opportunity for our listeners to hear some of the things that um, they're probably not going to hear through mainstream media or or any other places. So, Dr. Artwall once again, thank you for being on the show. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, this has been another uh, very fun for me uh, episode uh, of the Square Peg podcast, and we will see you all next week with a very brand new episode. Proudly produced by lascrucestoday.com and Bravo Mike Communications.